I couldn't help noticing these chairs here. It kind of makes me feel like Clint Eastwood, except a bit shorter. Um, <laughs> when he talked to that one chair, except I've got three of them. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> okay, let's get past that. <laughs> well, we have the Word of God before us this morning, and I am delighted to bring it to you. And uh, as Rod says, last time is a very heavy thing to uh, carry that, uh, that responsibility. So we pray that um, we are uh, careful in the use of God's Word and the application of it. Um, so a couple weeks ago, also, uh, yeah, a couple weeks ago, Ross, accompanied by uh, John Piper, <laughs> took us through the beginning of this very personal section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we have what we have before us today explains how his determination and zeal to complete the mission of Christ plays out in the expressions of his heart and why he wants us to know how deep his struggle goes. Right after he announces that the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory, he goes on to explain his own personal application of that truth and what we are about to read this morning. If you're following along, in the NIV, you'll notice a few places where I used a different word. One of them is an actual transliteration of the Greek. We actually have an English word that comes right out of the Greek. And that, uh, and that gets us a little bit closer to the original Greek meaning, and it helps us to actually get a really closer look at the depth of Paul's heart. So would you please stand with me, uh, if you're able, out of reverence for the Word of God as we are attentive to it. Starting at, at chapter 1, verse 28, and going through uh, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. He is the one we proclaim. Cautioning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously agonize with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am agonizing for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments." For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ 
is. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, enlighten our hearts and minds with these words this morning. Apply them in a way that just transforms us to be imitators of what Paul has set before us. Father, cause us more and more to keep Christ at the center of all of our thinking and all of our doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as with the rest of this letter, this, whole, uh, this section from verses 24 uh, included uh, a couple weeks ago, on through verse 5 of chapter 2 is very Christ-centered. His very first words in verse 28 is, He, He is the one, that is Christ, is the one we proclaim. We preach Christ. That is to say, we preach Christ. He Himself is our message. And that proclamation he goes on to explain, takes place through literally guiding our thinking and also teaching us out of the wisdom that Christ supplies so that we have a straight course, straight doctrine, straight truth that comes directly from Christ uh, when we were visiting our family in California, our son-in-law told the story of uh, working in the farm and uh, how his grandfather told him, he says, now, there's a thing out there, I want you to keep your eye on that when you're plowing. Otherwise, you know, if you look down at what you're plowing or you, you know, glance off, man, you know, you're going to be all over the place. He confirmed that to be true. Because he did not keep his eye on that one thing that he needed to keep his eye on. And boy, he was a lot of swerves. Our focus needs to be on Christ. True doctrine is the doctrine of Christ and nothing less. And then he adds so that, and he says that a couple times here, or with the goal of, or something along those lines, so that, indicating a final purpose to all that he labors for. This is what energizes him. This is what drives him. This is what he wants to accomplish. So proclaiming Christ is not just a one-off event, but a continuous labor, a struggle in true lifelong discipleship. In sacrificial, in sacrificially doing everything it takes for assuring that this one thing happens. That everyone, everyone without exception, everyone is not only well established in the faith, but also brought to full maturity in Christ, ready to be presented to God on the last day. Paul's looking ahead eschatologically to the very end of time, and he's 
This is what he wants to be able to see as everyone fully grown up in Christ, nothing else will do. This purpose of presenting them fully mature in Christ is the same idea he had expressed to the Thessalonians and what beautiful joy that he had in them. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, he said, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Now, here's the interesting thing that is that crown, that joy, that hope. Is it not you? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Oh, no wonder he was so wrapped up in this. No wonder he agonized for their spiritual well-being. He is saying, you are worth every last ounce of my energy. This is what I live for. Nothing better than this, than to see you before the throne of God with me. Is that your heart for everyone that you meet? I was going to save this for later, but I think now is the right place to point this out. And it didn't occur to me until Last week, in terms of coming together, you know, you kind of get, you almost don't see the big picture when you're looking at the details. But it didn't occur to me until last week why Paul was so <clears throat> passionate about what he was expressing in this part of the letter and the importance of this particular, to this particular church, to him personally, and as it turns out, every other church reaching all the way down even to us. Well, I knew it, but I didn't connect it as the heart of his personal message to them because it's really not stated directly in the text, so it's easy to miss. <laughs> but if you step back a little bit, but it's not obvious from the text until we step back from the details, and we see the big picture that flows out of the background that we might remember about the Colossian church and how they got there. Stay with me. Remember that this church was a second generation of believers from Paul's mission to the Gentiles through Epaphras whom he had sent to them. So it seems that Paul was a spiritual grandfather to them. They were his spiritual offspring to another generation. These were his grandchildren in the faith. And that explains why he expressed what he did and the way that he did in the next verse, which we will get to in just a moment. What he wants for them is the best that any godly grandparents want for their grandchildren. 
which he expressed here, to be able to present them all grown up in Christ. John in his second letter expresses something very similar. He says, I was delighted, filled with joy when I learned that your children are constantly living in the truth. This whole passage is the outpouring of the heart of a spiritual grandfather. The picture we get from here, as well as 1 Thessalonians, is that there is no greater joy. There's no greater joy than to know that not only your children, but your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and so on down the line are living in such a way that it is apparent that Christ is at the center of their lives. No better joy than that. And as you might have gotten last week, there is no greater grief than to see them stray and led astray by worldly and godless ideologies. No wonder Paul was so passionate because he knew they were facing opposition. And sometimes it was so subtle just to get them one degree off. There's no wonder Paul went on to say what he wanted them to know about how much he agonized over their spiritual well-being. When he says in verse 29, to this end I strenuously agonize with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. He's referring to his primary purpose in proclaiming Christ and why he is willing to pour all the energy that Christ pours into him on them. So that everyone fully grows up in Christ and nothing less. Not one falling short of that. He has a personal investment in them as a second generation spiritual offspring. So all the agony that goes into that purpose will be worth it when they stand before God complete in Christ. That's what he lived for. And that is the hill he was willing to die on. Nothing is better than that for this granddad. And then he goes on into chapter 2 and he breaks that all out and he explains who he has in mind, why he wants them to know the depth of his struggles in their behalf the long-term benefit of knowing Christ well that goes beyond just knowing Christ well and then expressing his confidence that they are actually solid and on track. Verse 1, we find out that he is all-inclusive starting with the Colossian church and then the Laodiceans and then everyone that he hasn't personally met. I would say it's very, very likely that a large number of us right here in this room are here 
as descendants of Paul's ministry to the Galatians. Wow. What a reach he had because he agonized for that generation. And he poured his life into that one thing, that they know Christ above all else. Paul had said elsewhere that his goal was to reach the unreached. Think of it. The long-term effects of his mission to the Gentile would reach all the way to us. He wanted us to know how much he continued throughout his life to agonize on our behalf. In verses 2 and 3, he states his goal. It sounds much like what we heard in uh, two weeks ago, that if we knew of his agonizing struggles in our behalf, first of all, our hearts would be encouraged. And that our thoughts, emotions, and our wills would be stirred and comforted by his attention to our spiritual well-being and the lengths he was willing to go to pouring out all his energy into us, willingly suffering agony in the depth of his soul. And this is what moved him to pray the things that he prayed in those earlier verses in chapter 1. And the things that he would follow up with in the next sermon coming up in a couple weeks that flows out of this as well. Secondly, that we would all be united in love. Why? How does that work in producing Christ in us? Gathering all the great treasures we have in Christ does not happen in a vacuum. We know Christ all the more deeply in the context of the whole body into which he has placed us. He brought us together to know him together. Loving and being loved in in the community of Christ is the beginning of experiencing the full riches of complete understanding. The riches of complete understanding are found here in the ones that we rub shoulders with. Do you see Christ in the ones that you look around at? In other words, the full riches of complete understanding are gained through the unified, loving relationships practiced in the body of Christ where we learn from and see Christ at work in one another. We truly come to know Christ more fully, more deeply when we learn to know one another as he knows us. And if we are truly devoted to him and seek his heart and want what he wants, we will come more and more to love what he loves to love who he loves. And then we know him better. 
interesting how that works. Paul modeled it for us in his relationship to the Thessalonians where he says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We all have a part, you see, like that. We all have a part in reinforcing not only the truth of the gospel, but how it is lived out, giving ourselves to one another out of brotherly love. And then as a body, we will know from experience and practice more than from theology that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And it becomes built in. <laughs> Christ, who is the mystery of God, who we already have. And so then, so then he's able to go on in verse 4, which is interesting because Paul doesn't go into any details about the nature of the deceptive false doctrines they're facing. He doesn't need to. Because they know the real thing who is in them. He said, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you. In other words, you already know what you need to know to recognize false teaching, no matter how good it may sound. You already know Christ. And the better you know him at the center of everything, maintaining that relationship in the context of his body, you will continue to know him the way, the truth, and the life so well and enough to recognize the lie that doesn't match up to what the truth really looks like. You've likely heard this before. Have you seen the cashiers that hold up a $50 or a $100 bill and take just a few seconds to look at it? Yeah? And very quickly, they determine that it is not a counterfeit. Do you know that most of those people have, don't even know what a counterfeit looks like? <laughs> They've never seen one. But they know the real thing. They've been trained for the particulars of what the real thing looks like. What sets the real thing apart? And that's all they need to know to recognize anything that's not the real thing. To know good, sound doctrine as distinguished from false teaching starts with knowing Christ well. Known people, you've probably known some, come across some who could, oh my, they could, talk biblical theology, and you know, just no matter what you say, I mean, they just know and can, have, can continue to have conversation on that subject for hours. And yet at the end of the day, they don't know Christ. 
and all that knowledge, all that biblical theology could sit there and collect dust for all the good it is if they don't know Christ well. No matter what else we study in the Scriptures, our first priority should be to spend a lot of time taking a good, long look at Jesus. I remember a number of years ago, Walt Hendrickson, a good Bible scholar, he said, no matter where you're studying in the Scriptures, no matter what you're meditating on, no matter what reading program you have or what you're studying and meditating on, he says, keep a finger in the gospel. Now, he could have said, keep a bookmark there, but he, keeping a finger there means it's immediate. <laughs> Spend a lot of time looking at Jesus, knowing him. I spent a lot of time looking for him right here as well. That should be our first priority. And then look at him lovingly at the work in one another and then love what you see. Now, the beautiful conclusion to Paul's personal outpouring comes in verse 5, where he assures them that they always have his attention. I am absent with you in body. I'm present with you in spirit. I'm present here. I have you in my heart. And he assures them of his confidence that their well-disciplined faith in Christ is solid. And that is a delight to him. That is what satisfies. He rejoices in them. That expresses the certainty that we have in being in Christ. And what we know of him to be true that he is faithful and he will keep us in himself. He does not let go. And that satisfies all the agony and all the energy that might be spent on any one single person. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, give us the passion of Paul for the gospel, for Christ in us, for even those that we have not met face to face, oh, that we would pour our energy into the proclamation of the gospel for the well-being of many, starting right here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.